evidence and answers. The Christian Church claims that the Bible is inspired and inerrant. This means that God is the one who moved through the writers to communicate to us the words which God wanted us to hear. This inspiration, however, is not a dictation, but a movement of God's Spirit through the writer, utilizing the personality and style of the writer. Inerrancy means that all that is written in the inspired documents is without error. Inspiration and inerrancy applies to the original writings, not to the copies. In other words, it is the original writings that are without error. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, we will continue on with the topic of inspiration and inerrancy. Now with part two of this fascinating study is Pat Zukran. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when I was golfing, right? When I first began, as soon as I had difficulty, I'd call the pro, you know, and I'd just say, hey. My ball's doing this. Come help me out. He'd be like, all right. So he'd come help me out. Then I'd go wrong again because golf swing always goes wrong, right, eventually. Even Tiger Woods, I mean, eventually the swing goes off. Call him up again. Hey, I'm doing this. Help me out. He'd come help me out. Well, eventually, about the fifth time I called him, he just said over the phone, you know what? Figure it out on your own. I said, what do you mean? You're the pro, man. He said, no, when you're on the golf course and your swing is going bad or the ball's not going... He said, you can't call me up and say, hey, you know, I'm playing bad. What do I do here? I'm on the third hole. you got to figure it out on the course. So he said, figure it out yourself. And the more I tried to figure out the golf swing, the better understanding I got of the golf swing. And that's kind of as we study the Bible. You know, the more we study it on our own and try to figure it out, the more we're going to learn and the more fascinated you get by the Bible. Now, when you come to a difficulty or what appears to be an error, there are three options. It's called uh, St. Augustine's Dictum. He's a 4th century church father, one of the great philosophers, Christian philosopher, one of the first Christian philosophers in church history. He said this, okay, there's three options. One, the manuscript is faulty, not the original. The copy is faulty. There's something wrong with the manuscript which it came from. Or number two, the translation could be faulty. Or number three, you have not properly understood the text. And it's one of those three options. It's usually one of those three options. Either the manuscript is faulty, the translation is faulty, or we have misunderstood the text. It's one of those three options. Now, there are many who attack the Bible, most attacked book in history. And here's some of the errors of the critics. Okay, well, there's ten, but uh, we'll just get through as many as we can. Maybe the first five, we'll see. But often what we find is that the critics have been wrong, and the Bible proves itself to be true over and over and over again. For example, for many years, people thought the Hittites mentioned in the Old Testament were just a mythological group of people. And there was a serious error in the Bible. Then, nearly a century ago, we discovered Hattusas, the capital of the Hittite Empire, and as we uncovered it, we discovered that the Hittite language is the ancient forefather to many of the Indo-European languages. Okay? So many times the critics were wrong, and the Bible proved itself to be true. Here are some of the common errors you're going to find of those who attack the Bible. First one, the assumption 
that the Bible, presuming the Bible guilty until proven innocent. So already assuming the Bible is guilty and the burden of the weight is to prove itself innocent. But like an American citizen, the Bible should be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Hey, we cannot live, you cannot live if you presumed everything to be guilty and false until it's proven innocent. When you come up to a road sign, what do you assume? It's telling you the right thing, left turn only, you know, or that it's red. Labels on food. I mean, if you assume they were all false, you went up to a, you know, can of beans and you assumed it's false, what would you have to do? You got to open every can of beans before you can buy one. You're presuming it to be false. Numbers on currency. What if you assume them to be wrong? You know? Signs on restrooms. Right? When it says men, you know, you just presume them to be wrong. Like, well, you're not going to go to the bathroom? I mean, you know. You cannot live if you presume everything guilty until proven innocent. You should, with the Bible, presume it to be innocent unless, or historically accurate unless you've got good reason to presume that it is false. And there's good reason that the Bible is indeed historically accurate and indeed, the divine word of God. Error number two, forgetting that the original text is inspired and inerrant and not the copies. Often what you're going to find, you know, I just got in the email, you know, a Muslim attacking the Bible. And he said, you see, it says this and that. Well, he makes the common mistake. He's attacking our copies, not the original. Right? The original has no errors. The copies have some discrepancies or some errors. Here's one in the King James. It says in 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon had 40,000 stalls. 1 Kings chapter 4. And in 2 Chronicles, it says Solomon had 4,000 stalls of horses. Now, they both can't be right. Okay? They both can't be right. Which one do you think it is? Probably 4,000. Right? Probably a scribe stuck in an extra zero there. Okay? That's... See, you guys do good. You guys are already on your way to what's called being good in the art of textual criticism. Okay? Ahaziah, 2 Kings, he was 22 okay? but when he came to the throne. But in 2 Chronicles 22, it says that he was 42. Now, we can figure out which one was the error, the scribe's error, because if he was 42 when he came to the throne, he would have been older than his father. Right? Figure out where the errors are here. So although the copies may have errors or discrepancies, the originals do not. And often what you'll find with the critics is they are attacking, when it comes to the doctrine of inerrancy, they're attacking the copies. Okay? And we're not defending our present-day Bible, because this is a copy, right? as inerrant and without error. It's the originals. Unlike Islam, okay? Islam teaches that the Quran that they have the Quran that you can buy in the bookstore is the perfect book that has come out of heaven. It doesn't have any errors in there. What you see in the Quran is what's up there in heaven. So if you can point out a couple errors in the Quran, that blows that whole thing out of the water. And if you look in the Quran, there are several places where there's significant errors there. Right? But when it comes to the Bible, we're not saying that the Bible we hold in our hands is perfect and without error. It's the originals that are without error. It's a point of confusion for a lot of Christians. I didn't get that figured out till I went to seminary, you know. So I had to go to grad school to finally figure that thing out. There are errors in the copies, not in the originals. 
the errors or discrepancies are rare, they affect no doctrine of scripture, and we usually know which one is correct by the context. Here's an example here. What if you receive a message like this? Y, and then the letter here is missing, and then the letter U, have won $10 million. Okay, suppose you got that in the mail there. You don't know what that second letter is. Would, would you collect the money? Certainly. Okay, you can figure out what letter is missing there. Now, here's the art of textual criticism here. Okay, what if you received two manuscripts that read like this? The first one has the second letter missing. The third one has the third letter missing. Can you still figure out the message? Yeah, you've won $10 million. You can still figure it out. That's the art of textual criticism. What if you see this? Okay, the second word is missing here. Can you still figure it out? Yeah, you can figure it out. Okay? That's the art of textual criticism. That's what we have when we're looking at thousands of manuscripts. We're looking at things like this. Okay? And we can figure out what the sentence is saying or what the meaning is. So even with errors, 100% of the message comes through. And the more errors you can find in more manuscripts, the more sure you are of the original message. And the Bible has many less errors in the copies than this. Error number three, confusing our fallible interpretation with God's infallible revelation. The Bible cannot be wrong, but our interpretation can be wrong. The Bible is infallible, but we are not. So just because the pastor or a denomination or a school interprets the Bible incorrectly, just because their interpretation is wrong doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. For many years, there were some denominations that taught Genesis 9, the curse of Cain, right, was a curse on blacks. Therefore, some seminaries didn't allow black students into the school. We know that that's an incorrect interpretation, okay? that's the curse on the Canaanites, not on blacks. Okay? But for many years, especially here in the United States and in the Western civilization, they thought that curse was on blacks. So there are some schools, even in this state, that didn't allow black students into the seminaries. Well, just because a denomination or people interpret the Bible incorrectly, okay, their interpretation is wrong, not the Bible. You know, Genesis 6 talks about the sons of God, right, going into the daughters of men and they produce this race of giants, right? What is that? Right? Now, some say, well, you know, one interpretation is that these are fallen angels who have sex with women and produce this race of giants. Some say these are just, you know, that's one interpretation. A second interpretation is that these are the sons of Cain, right? rebellious line. They just produced giant men, powerful men, okay? became men of renown. Third interpretation is that these are demons who possessed men who then went into women and you know, produced this race of giants. Now, I've held all three of those at one time. Okay? Now, they cannot all be right at the same time. Okay? One of them is correct. The other two are wrong. Well, which one is it? You know, well, just because Pat Zucran was wrong in his interpretation of this difficult passage, does that mean the Bible is wrong? No, okay? it means I'm wrong. Okay. Error number four. Assuming 
that the unexplained is not explainable. Remember the illustration we gave earlier, right? Science did not have explanations for many things, right? The bumblebees flying, the origin of the universe. However, with more and more study, explanations were discovered. Same with the Bible. We had no explanations for many things, but with more study, with more historical research, especially what we are learning through archaeology and the historical sciences, many explanations are coming about. For example, the fall of Jericho. We thought for many years that was a myth until in the 30s and 40s, Dr. Garstang did his dig at Jericho there and he discovered, yeah, indeed, the walls did fall in a sudden way. He thought it was probably an earthquake of some sort. Then Kathleen Kenyon came in the 60s and 70s, did her dig, and she saw that the city was burned to the ground and all that. But she said, wait a minute, we got a problem here. This city was destroyed in 1200 B.C. That's 200 years after Joshua. So when Joshua came, the city was, the city was empty. You know, it was all done. And, you know, with more research now, with the Italian dig, and Dr. Brian Wood doing there, they discovered Kathleen Kenyon was digging in the poor part of the city. She was looking for pottery, you know, Phoenician pottery, but that would be in the wealthier part of the city. You know, because she didn't find Phoenician pottery, she said, well, this you know, city fell much later than the Bible said. Well, when they dug in the central part of the city, they discovered the pottery there, and they matched it up to the dates, and it's accurate to the biblical text. So, just because it's unexplained now doesn't mean it's unexplainable. All right? With more study, with more research, it can probably be explained. Error number four. Assuming that a partial report is a false report. Many times in the Bible you have partial reports. And when you match it up to the parallel text you discover you know, different facts there. And therefore, the critics look and say, aha, see, there's an error. For example, what was above Jesus on the cross? What did the sign say? Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says, this is what was above Jesus, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. John says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Now, skeptics will look at that and say, aha, see, is an error. See, error. Four different things written above the head of Jesus. No, they're giving partial reports. All right? You put it all together, and what do you get? The complete sentence is, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Another one you often find, what happened on the resurrection morning? Matthew 28 says, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, and they were met by an angel who ordered them to tell the disciples, Jesus is risen. John 20:11. Mary Magdalene came, she looked into the tomb and was met by two angels and then she turned around and saw Jesus. Which one is it? Do we have a contradiction there? No. The women came to the tomb first, ran back, told the disciples, right, he's risen. The disciples ran to the tomb, saw that it was empty. Then the women came back a second time, right, and that's where Mary Magdalene runs into Jesus. So you need to put them all together. But just because it's a partial report, doesn't mean it is false. If we cannot believe any 
report. If we say that partial reports are false, then we cannot believe any report, for most reports are what? Partial. Rarely do you get a full-on report. Hey, read the sports section today of the Dallas Cowboys victory. Hey, you're not going to see any articles in there to give you blow-by-blow, minute-by-minute account. Some will focus on the injuries to the running backs. Some will focus on Tony Romo's performance. Some will focus on the defense's performance. Hey, was well, each one false? They're only given partial reports. No. Okay? Partial report is not a false report. And number five, assuming that divergent accounts are contradictory and therefore false ones. For example, Matthew 28 said there was one angel at the tomb, but John 20 says there were two angels there. Divergent account, contradiction, therefore it must be false, right? No. Remember, here's a very simple answer. Wherever there are two, there must be one. You get it? Real simple. Wherever there are two, there must be one. Matthew highlights only one angel because only one angel talked to the woman. All right? But Matthew doesn't say there was only one angel. And he only highlights one angel because one angel interacted with the women. And John says that there were two. Another one. Judas hanged himself. Okay? But in Acts chapter 1, it says Judas falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his entrails gushed out. Okay? Divergent accounts. Therefore, there's a contradiction. The Bible is false, right? No. You put it together and you get the whole picture. Judas hung himself and he died. Then several hours later, as his body was, you know, yeah. Okay, eventually the rope broke and fell and it got spilled out. So partial reports or divergent accounts doesn't point to error. Okay? You often have to put the accounts together and you get the full picture. Just like that's what policemen have to do, right? When they come to a crime scene or an accident, right? They come to an accident at an intersection and there's a person who's behind the car that crashed. You got people on the sidewalk who might have seen it. People who are three or four cars back who may have seen it. Now they're talking to all the witnesses and they're all giving partial or divergent accounts from their perspective. And the policeman or the investigator puts it all together and he gets the complete picture. And that's what we do with the Bible here. Just because there are divergent accounts doesn't mean there's an error there. Alright, forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical, everyday language. All right? It's written for the common man in the common language. So, for example, Joshua says that the sun stood still. Right? When really, what? The earth stopped rotating. Well, you got to remember okay, that it's using common everyday language. Even meteorologists today speak of sunrise and sunset. Right? No scientist ever says, Honey, look at the beautiful rotation of the earth. Assuming that round numbers are false. Okay, pi is 3.141592, you know, on and on. Okay, but the Bible in Second Chronicles 4.2 presents pi as 3, not 3.141. Okay? Therefore, is there an inaccuracy there? No, it's just giving you round numbers. And even scientists round off pi to a limited number of points. Right? By the way, this is really interesting. My neighbor, who was an engineer with Alcatel, we were sitting down 
And he said, I went to Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 2, and I measured the circumference of those bronze bowls. And all that, and I'm going, oh man, I'm in trouble here. And he said, you know what? He said, mathematically, that's correct. And I'm like, ooh, all right. Okay. So, Bible presents pi in Second Chronicles 4, okay, as 3. All right. Presuming the Bible approves all it records. So you have a contradiction there. You know, the Bible records David's adultery, therefore it must approve of it. Or his polygamy. Or Ecclesiastes, right? It's about vanity. Life is all vanity. It's all meaningless. No, the Bible records things as they actually happen. And, it, and where there are sinful things, it identifies them as sin or deviating from God's law, but it does not approve of it. Number nine, taking figures of speech literally. Remember, the Bible uses symbolic language, okay? poetry, parables, allegories, similes, metaphors. Therefore, as we studied last time, you've got to interpret it according to the laws of interpretation, according to the context, the grammar, and the style of writing that you have. When you read poetry, you don't read it the same way as you read the front page of the newspaper. Right? When you're reading an editorial, you don't read it the same way as you read the front page of the paper. Same thing with the Bible. There's different styles of writing. So when Jesus is teaching a parable or an allegory or a metaphor, we don't want to do what's called taking it hyper-literally. Hyperboles. If your right eye make causes you to sin, pluck it out. Right. So are we supposed to all pull it out? No. Right. Give me a hyperbole there, showing you the seriousness of sin. Hey, this is serious stuff. Okay. Failing to understand the context of the passage, as the old adage states, a text out of context is a pretext. For example, you know, I get this one all the time. Right. Psalm 14 or Ecclesiastes. Psalm 14, you know, if we just take the sentence, there is no God. But what's the context? Well, the fool says there is no God. Uh, I got an email from an atheist the other day, and she said, oh, look, Ecclesiastes says when we die, you know, their memory is no more. So you see, there's no life after death. Well, yeah, look at Ecclesiastes. Okay, what is the context? Well, it talks about everything being what? Under the sun. You're talking about Solomon who has turned away from God. And he's looking at the end of his life after he had turned away from God and realizing life without God is what? Meaningless. That's how he opens the book. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you've got to look at the verse or the passage in its complete context. Okay? The Bible says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Okay? But science shows us that it's not. It's the orchid seed. Okay? However, the context is referring to seeds in Israel in the first century A.D. So the mustard seed was the smallest one at that time which a man took and sowed in his field. It's not saying it's the smallest seed in the entire whole world. Alright, so, in conclusion, no one has ever demonstrated an error in the Bible, but we have seen that there are many errors with the critics. Here's a great book by Dr. Geisler. 
things called the big book of Bible difficulties. Now, Mark Twain said this, It is not the part of the Bible I don't understand that troubles me the most. It is the part of the Bible I do understand that troubles me the most. Okay, so we should not criticize the Bible. We should let the Bible criticize us. So indeed, this is a unique book. It is the only inspired and inerrant word of God. Its origin is divine, inspired through human authors who gave us indeed the very words of God. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes Pat's study. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on that Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We do have a wide variety of resources for you. Just go to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, go to their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers.